Sorry, everyone who came here from Brooklyn. We love you. Um, Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our March 13, 2018 event, which featured readers from three different genres, poetry, essays, and a novel. You're going to hear this time from Jared Harrell, Morgan Jerkins, and Rachel Lyon. And as you know, we're very proud to be in Queens, so before each of our readers reads from their own writing, we have them share a brief anecdote about the borough of Queens. If you want to hear the panel discussion for this event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's start with our introductions to our first reader, Jared Harrell. But we're going to get started for real with Jared Harrell. Jared Harrell is the author of Go Because I Love You, which is for sale here and just came out. Like, just came out. What, how many days old is it? Days old? Five days old! He was like a, a book baby over here. Be gentle. Um, uh, and he's also the author of The Body Double on Brooklyn Arts Press in 2012. He's been awarded the Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize from American Poetry Review the William Matthews Poetry Prize from Asheville Poetry Review, and he received an individual artist grant from our friends, the Queen's Council on the Arts. His poems have appeared in such journals as Tin House, The Three Penny Review, The Southern Review, Massachusetts Review, Water Reviews, <laughs> Poetry Daily, Bennington Review, 32 Poems, and Newtown Literary, which, by the way, I'll talk more about later. Harrell teaches writing at Nassau Community College, plays drums for the rock band Flying J and the Ghost Robber. Where's your trap set, man? Like, next time. Okay. And he lives in Rigo Park, which, by the way, is in Queens, uh, with his wife and two kids. I just want to say, so I pulled, Jared, for you. <clears throat> you have amazing reviews on Rate My Professor. I'm just... I'm just gonna share some because they're so they're so heartwarming. I think you even got like a like a hot he's hot pepper. Oh no! Um, <laughs> Professor Harrell is an amazing teacher. He's he makes me knock my glass over. Okay, he's interesting and engaging and really cares about his students. It was always an enjoyable class. Honestly, a wonderful teacher, respectful, smart. Funny. And finally, a good man. <laughs> and a caring professor. Let's give it up for Jared. Wow. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? I, I don't know if I've read those, but <laughs> I have now. Um, I think I got it right. Is that going to drop on me? Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Catherine. Um, thank you, Story Bookshop. Rachel Morgan, um, really, really wonderful to be here. Um, so uh, I'm going to read from my, my new collection, Go Because I Love You. Uh, it, it is very new. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm, I'm going to. Oh, 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 I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. But before I start reading... <laughs> Um, so the Queen's anecdote thing, I've been living in Queens for 10 years. So the idea of an anecdote, um, seemed a bit like, I was like, all right, what am I going to say? Like, I've been, this is, this is my life. My two kids were born here. I'm here every day. Um, so I decided that anecdote wise, I'd start with when I first moved here. Uh, so I first moved to a story. I live in Rigo Park now, but I was in a story for about seven years. And about a month after I moved into my first apartment, uh, a mouse showed up and I let my landlord know and the landlord put down a, a glue trap, uh, which I'd never been really privy to. And a day later, the mouse was in the glue trap. And so I didn't know what to do. I picked up the mouse and um, I, I, I was trying to figure out what to do. So I brought him outside. Uh, so my neighbor... Um, it's a very Greek area, Astoria. So my neighbor is a, was an elderly, uh, Greek man named Sparrows, who was a keyboardist and always was working on his van. 
and wore leather pants and had jerry curls. And I, I was sitting there. I came out and suddenly like the three neighborhood cats immediately paid attention. I was like, oh, oh, no, that's not good. Um, <laughs> so uh, Sparrow saw I was, I was out there and he came to me and I, I was like, I have this mouse here in the glue trap. And I thought he was going to try to help me get the mouse out. And instead, he took the glue trap, brought it over to the middle of the street, placed it down and said, the cars in the street move very fast. <laughs> and that was my introduction to Astoria. <laughs> so, they move very, very fast. I can't do the accent, but they move very fast. And sure enough, they did. Um, um, anyways, uh, so I'm going to start by reading, I guess, what's sort of the title poem in the collection. And the collection um, speaks to themes of arrivals and departures, kind of the intersection of love and loss. Um, that, that tension is kind of in the title. Um, what you need to know about this one. So my wife is a lawyer and she bills in 10 minute increments and I do this. Um, and when she's feeling partic particularly ambitious, she has this phrase of hers, um, which is the title of the poem. And the poem's rooted in that phrase. It's called, go so you can come back. Go so you can come back, says my wife, meaning go but don't linger in frozen foods or forget where you parked or chat up the cashier. Go, certainly, because something needs getting while the baby takes a nap and the snow isn't snowing, and here are some coupons that happen to be expiring. So go before all the ripe produce turns soft and stringy and school lets out and a tallish boy hawking skittles by the entrance wins you over and you throw him cash, your wallet, everything for the sake of his underfunded football team, because though you never loved football, you love James Wright's poem about football and solitude and those suicidally beautiful galloping sons who go at it and go because I love you, though I also love those Parmesan pop chips, and to love is to leave room for longing, but come back so that we might go out together later, and a perpetual rotation of goings and comings, which requires nothing but patience and faith that when we go, we remember where is home. It's so cozy in here. I feel like I should be drinking tea. Um, uh, this next one's something of a Queen's poem. I think, though, most people who live in urban areas can potentially relate to it. Again, that theme of arrivals and departures, which I didn't realize until I tried putting the book together. Uh, this poem's called All Possible Fates. The universe is expanding, but my apartment is not. <laughs> this is balance, I tell myself, tripping over trikes, toy blocks, the way a house cat can convince itself a mattress is wilderness, its very own savanna or how no one in the neighborhood can afford the neighborhood, though we ghost past townhouses pretending they are ours. In the end, isn't it in our nature to disperse, to pull away? When my daughter begs to play hide and seek, I try my best not to find her immediately, though there are only so many places to hide. Then one day, sick of ducking behind sofa cushions or under the desk, she slips into the bathroom, snaps down the lock three years old and well out of reach. Before I knew I too could disappear, I would leap off balconies, bunk beds, and swings, bike to the brink of each dead-end street. I write this beside a man weeping into the arts and leisure section of the times. His lips are quivering, face wet, yet what can I do but look away? I look away, but he's in this now fixed inside like how my daughter was a door I threatened and pleaded with until she felt like having pancakes and turned the knob. I admit all fault to all possible fates. Are we bound to be an airport where everyone leaves? Um, so my daughter shows up, my daughter's five, she's in kindergarten. Uh, she shows up in a lot of this book uh, to her tremendous pleasure um, 
when she saw that, when she got the book and saw that, like she was in the dedication, she's like, I'm famous, I'm famous. And I'm like, you don't understand the modern poetry world. <laughs> I'm like, you're not remotely famous. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this next poem is about, uh, we did move. We moved to Rigo Park about a year and a half ago uh, to a higher floor and with a nice view. Uh, and this poem's called New View. What luck, the sunset is something to look at. Angelic grand gesture braggadocio of sky, jogger in pink socks down a tie-dye avenue. This high up, I show it to my daughter. I say the sun's going to bed and the colors are its pajamas. I say this crap and it becomes her childhood, the deep, <laughs> impossible nodding of her heart. It's hopeless, I can't help but speak of her heart. Crimson motor of meat and stardust, little metaphor, mighty tugboat. I say, you know, not everything I tell you is true. She says the sun waves goodbye, but the moon doesn't want to. Uh, I'll read two more. All right, so, um, this next one's an elegy of sorts to many things. Um, we're all familiar with Leonard Cohen, passed away. Uh, and so we're all familiar with the last election, last president. <laughs> um, so one of the things that was that I took a little bit of solace in after that last election was that I, I lived in Queens and it, it did feel like we were sort of grieving together a little bit. And so Leonard Cohen passed away, it seemed instantaneously after the election. <laughs> which seemed like tremendous timing on his part. And um, so this poem uh, takes its title from Cohen's final album, which he put out about a month before he passed away. It's called You Want It Darker. The day after the election, Leonard Cohen dies and my eye gets infected and my daughter flies around the living room refusing to put on underwear. I can barely lift my head to see the smug sun pouring through the blinds, streaming its white spotlight on each darkened wall. I'm all in on grief and misery, all in shock and fuck this country, but it's still a day, a day I don't teach but strap my son into his Cheerio-encrusted stroller, by the way, I have a son, um, and wheel him to his baby taps dance class at the Y. We arrive to find the teacher red-eyed and wrecked, her t-shirt wrinkled, acoustic, slung low. Only one other parent is bothered to show, her kid wailing beneath the moon glow of her phone. When it becomes clear no one else is coming, the teacher begins to strum and sing of fall, of piggies at market and monkeys in our beds. We squeeze our fingers into spinning fists and imagine we are buses peeling out of town. It all culminates in the world's saddest rendition of if you're happy and you know it, <laughs> in which we're summoned to rise up off our multicolored mats to clap and stomp and shout, hooray. <laughs> oh God, oh Leonard who shed this life like a pinstripe suit, who saw this mess and chose not to stay but slip between the bricks in his tower of song, the sun is still out there, armored and gleaming. There is nothing I can say to make it stop. Um, I got one more for you. So, as I mentioned, I do have a son. He's two. Um, he's, in, he's in the book less because he's younger. Um, but he is in here. So this is the first poem I ever wrote about him. Uh, are people familiar with a bris? It's New York. We're, we're familiar. Okay. So it's a, a Jewish, um, a ceremonial circumcision that takes place a week after, after the birth. So the, the poem is sort of rooted in that experience. It also makes repeated references to a 1960s pop hit by Leslie Gore, which you may, you may hear. <laughs> I also wrote this under massive sleep deprivation. Uh, so it's called Meditation in the Key of an Exhale. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to, <laughs> says my son at his bris. 
And though it's my party and I carry the weight of a hundred generations on the tip of my penis might be more apt. Or it's my party, let us pray. The truth is it isn't a party in my family until somebody cries or storms off in shame, barricading themselves in the opposite sex restroom. While my son, for what it's worth, hardly cried at all at the critical juncture, just sucked the wine-soaked rag between his gums, the way Abraham bit the branch of a thick-knuckled olive tree when he snipped himself, joining a club he was the sole member of, party of one. Is it still my party? asks my son, slumped in the pocket of my elbow. He looks just like his sonogram ghost on the fridge. My lips, my wife's nose, and who knows whose chin. It's my poetry, and I promise not to cry when I read this to him. How the instant I saw him, I thought he was dead. A silence so wide, I stage-dived into it. Was it the winter in his eyes, that umbilical noose so close to his neck? It's my party, and I predicted a smaller turnout, less guests. I expected to be alone. But here he is, plump as a blood plum, a part of it now, somehow my son. So when the ceremony is over and everyone is gone, I snap him into the car seat, tighten the straps. And holy hell, my heart is in my throat. Thank you. One more time for Jared. Your students are right. You're a good man. And you're funny. <laughs> Next up we have Morgan Jerkins. You guys, Morgan Jerkins is the author of This Will Be My Undoing, which just came out this year, like in the end of January, right? It's right here, it's beautiful. Look, check this out. That's Morgan on the cover. <laughs> and you're gonna meet her in person, like a, like a celebrity, folks, come on. Right. <laughs> Jerkins graduated from Princeton University with an AB in comparative literature and she has an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars. The readers are learning things about each other right now. What do you speak? You speak like five languages, right? Yeah, she speaks seriously five five languages. Ask 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 her at intermission or something. Right, exactly. I know. Let's let's talk about the rest of her life too. Okay. Uh, she's written for the New Yorker, New York Times, The Atlantic, L, The New Republic, and BuzzFeed, among others. She's an associate editor at Catapult, and she lives in New York. I want to let you guys know this will be a, my undoing. Is named one of the was named one of the most anticipated books of 2018 by like everybody. I mean, I I'm gonna list them, but it's like everybody: Esquire, L, Vogue, Nylon, The Millions, Refinery29, The Huffington Post, Book Riot, Bitch Media, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, Volume One, Brooklyn, and Paperback Paris were all like, you got to get this book. <laughs> Um, Salon says that Morgan Jerkins is what a voice of a generation sounds like, and the LA Times calls This Will Be My Undoing a vital essay collection for the current political moment. Let's all get excited for Morgan. This is always the worst part, because I'm always the shortest, and it's like, you always have to take a little moment, thank you. Yeah, sorry, I was making my way wobbling up here. I was doing a workout before I came, so I'm not a runner, so I'm just like, take my legs. So that was a hard act to follow. Jared, thank you so much for reading. My section is not funny. So uh, <laughs> sorry about that in advance. Um, oh, I got to start with Queens. Yeah, so 90% of the people I meet in New York, I meet them through Twitter, which makes like meet and greet so much easier. Because if you follow my timeline, you already see how irreverent I can be. It, you can just break the ice quicker. I cannot take small talk. So um, 
One time I had a, a friend of mine um, through Twitter asked if I wanted to meet up in Jackson Heights, I think it was, for some Brazilian food. And I've never had Brazilian food before. I studied Portuguese in college, but I never, there was no Brazilian cuisine options in Princeton, unfortunately. Um, and so I went to Queens and he took me to this huge buffet and it was so good. And so that friend of mine actually, um, I'm still friends with him to this day. And it was a nice uh, culinary experience. And then I took the train, the seven train back to uh, 42nd Street to go back uptown to Harlem. And like, I'm sorry, but the seven train at night is so romantic when you're going <laughs> back from Queens to Manhattan. If you just look up and just see like just the sky and everything it's really nice i hope that wasn't cheesy but when i think of queens i'm like tonight i'm like yeah i get to take the train back and watch so okay speaking of romantic i'm gonna talk about some romantic mishaps um so yeah thank you oh and thank you so much for coming thank you to jared and, and just uh for reading before me um and thank you for inviting me okay so I'm just talking to say the intros, like my dating experience was pretty bad, but it was going to be layered by race and gender, of course. Immediately after moving to Harlem, I joined Tinder. Kelvin and I went on two dates before he told me that I was looking for serious commitment that he was not willing to give. There was Etienne, a Malian guy who stood at a staggering six feet, six inches. He tried to woo me with his alleged sexual prowess, but inevitably this scared me off. And I told him that we were better off friends. Leon, a wealthy, suave Nigerian guy who worked in marketing and boasted about his salary, wanted us to spend half of our date in his BMW. When I asked to spend time with him again, since he was attractive and successful, he told me he was busy and ne never left the door open to schedule anything in the future. All the while, I was writing more online, and this led me to meeting David. David was a black investment banker with a strong penchant for African-American literature, and he contacted me through a black Harlem group me message because he wanted to discuss an article I'd recently written about gentrification. Because I had just moved to Harlem and my friend's circle mainly consisted of people from Princeton, I agreed. What I thought would be a short meeting at a local cafe turned into a two hour long stroll around the neighborhood during which we talked about gentrification, blackness, street harassment, and Toni Morrison. I was impressed. I hadn't expected an investment banker to revere, almost worship Toni Morrison. He was able to quote lines from Sula and Paradise with ease. Our stroll culminated on my French stoop where we exchanged numbers. I quickly willed myself to forget about him, trying hard not to fall too fast for a stranger. That is, until he reached out several hours later and hinted that he would love to see me again. Our first real date took place at a Barnes & Noble on the Upper West Side. He asked me about my dreams and aspirations as we went through the aisles of new fiction and nonfiction. I didn't have to hide any part of myself. Needless to say, I did fall hard for him, and that spiral of desire led to a crash landing. I was a frequent texter and David wasn't, blaming his late responses on personal issues and exhaustion from work. I'd badger my girlfriends asking how to interpret his text messages and whether his interest was still there. When we were spending time together, he was entirely engaged in the moment. But when we weren't actively spending time together, I thought that I was dating myself. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. Then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I desperately tried to hold on to our chemistry, waiting anxiously by my cell phone, but I knew he was steadily pulling away from me. We stopped talking altogether when he told me that he did not have it in him to be in a committed relationship. He was stressed out over his job, the prospect of going to law school, and the responsibility of supporting his mother and sister back in Texas. I didn't hear from him for months until I was published on the New Yorker's website and he congratulated me on my achievement. By the way, that's what always happens. I call them boomerang men. Every time something's going well in your life, they just come right back around coincidentally. <laughs> Believing that after the long silence, this meant that he was finally ready for me. I woke up at six o'clock on a spring morning to a text from him asking for me to call him as soon as possible. When I did, I soon discovered that he only wanted to be friends with me, although he left the option open for casual sex. <laughs> I told him that wasn't what I wanted. I yearned for love within a committed relationship. 
You sound like you're falling into the trope of the overachieving black woman who has super high standards, he said. And I shattered all over again. Although he later apologized and I accepted that apology, I felt like a failure on a much larger level than I ever had before. Rejection was because I was too clingy, too outspoken, too aggressive, or too talkative. I was rejected because I was a black woman who was too successful. Somehow, all my achievements that I had worked so hard to accrue seemed to be steadily whittling away my dating prospects. In the beginning, I thought that my anxiety about dating was mine and mine alone until I started paying more attention to popular culture and the ways black men fueled this dilemma. Tyler Perry has made millions off of characterizing successful black women as bitter, pretentious, single shrews who need a man to soften their behavior. So see Daddy's Little Girls, for example, or those who insult black men. See Medea in the Diary of a Mad Black Woman and I Can Do Bad All By Myself and Angela and Why Did I Get Married? This is not to say that these kinds of black women do not exist, but it is disappointing that Perry, one of the most visible black filmmakers of our generation, perpetuates these stereotypes. What is it about our goals that leads to our stigmatization? Is it because there is a deep-seated fear black women will outpace black men, and the only way to remind us of our place is to withhold love and affection? We may be accepted out there in the world with a good paying job, but that world will never give us love because it wasn't designed to. But when we return to the folds of our community and we find that we are denigrated for the skills we use to survive, what else can we do but suppress ourselves just so we'll have somebody? Coined by Moya Bailey and further developed by Trudy Hamilton of the now defunct feminist blog Gradient Lair, the word misogynoir describes the hatred towards black women specifically manifested through American visual and popular culture. It is so rampant that to try to conceive of ways to eradicate it would be to pull the threads of society apart altogether. Leslie Jones's continual harassment on Twitter for being a black woman in Ghostbusters is a prime example. Anytime you see an animalistic or masculine image of Michelle Obama, that's misogynoir. Whenever black women's lives are used as props to empower white women, such as the phenomenon of Miley Cyrus twerking or Lily Allen's satire in the Heart Out There video, that is misogynoir. I don't want to believe that David deliberately intended to hurt me, but at the same time, he is too smart not to know what his statement meant. I wish I could have asked him why he hated me so much before emphasizing to him that despite what he's been told, I am not his enemy. It felt like no matter what I did, whether I lived in my mother's house in New Jersey or my apartment in New York, wrote in obscurity or heightened visibility, took initiative or became more submissive, my romantic life always floundered. And because David is Black, his comment made me feel like I failed not only on a societal and gendered level, but also an ethnocultural one. And this failure textured all my past dating experiences. What if I could not keep a man around long enough because I was a black woman who didn't know her place? What if the modifier of being a black woman vacuumed all my other qualities away? It is an insecurity that I am constantly trying to tease out of my consciousness, but that is hard to do when you're reminded of the statistics about black women's marriageability or lack thereof. Every time your grandmother asks yet again if you've met anyone, when people crack jokes about why black women's attitudes are the reason black men flock to white women. Thank you. a lot of applause to Morgan. You guys, this book is so good and just like like you said, you, you just like, you go there. You just like you you go there and you it's I wouldn't say you don't have a filter, but you just like maybe maybe yeah, maybe fill it. But like you're honest and it's so refreshing to read and I think you were made a comment earlier about um people were laughing and you're like oh it's it's funny and i think people laugh because they're like no we really know that it's not we're like we get it and they're like it's a laugh you know what i mean right you set it up and you drop okay um guys thank you let's say thank you again to jared and to morgan for starting us off right all right whatever it's not about me it's about our next reader who's rachel lyon Rachel Lyon is the author of the novel Self-Portrait with Boy, which, how how many days old is your book now? Uh, 32. 32 days? Like your book can teach some things to Jared's five-year-old book. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, so you're the middle child here? Is that 
right? I'm asking you guys to do some quick math. Okay, so we have our middle child author reading third. Uh, Rachel Lyons, the author of Self-Portrait with Boy, which is here for sale. Her shorter work has appeared or is forthcoming in Joyland, Iowa Review, Electric Literature, and other publications. She teaches for Sackett Street Writers Workshop, Catapult, Slice, and Elsewhere, and sends out a weekly writing thinking prompts newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Rachel Lyon. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-L-Y-O-N. Rachel is a co-founder of the reading series Dip Miss Lit. Shout out to my fellow reading series founder. In her native Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you can visit her at her reading series or at her website, rachellyon.work. That's her website. It's amazing. rachellyon.work. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> what's that? It should be. It's oh, I'm sorry. RachelLyon dot work, work, <clears throat> with an O. Um, so for uh, this one, I I did this last. I did this in January. I was like, why does this do this? I always breathe very hard in the mic. Uh, sorry, you guys. You don't have to share this. Don't worry. Um, Rachel Lyon. So uh, yes. Self-Portrait with Boy, LA Review of Books calls it a fascinating first novel, hard to put down, and says that Rachel ha Lyon has drawn a wonderfully complex character in Lou Ryle, the, the lead character in this book, who's the Lou Ryle is smart and observant, intelligent, shrewd, and intense. Kirkus Reviews says that this book is fearless and sharp. <laughs> Let's get stung by Rachel, guys. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Catherine. You guys were great. Great readers. Great audience. Everybody's very beautiful. Um, so I grew up in Brooklyn, which means I have snobbery about Queens. I'm sorry. <laughs> But it's just, I've come by it honestly. It's my birthright. Um, I will say that uh, when I was growing up, I don't know really how these stories are going to get connected, but hopefully while I talk, they will become related and part of the same story. I, I used to play violin, and I went to the Third Street Musical School Settlement, which is in Manhattan. And there was this girl there who was like my little... Uh, nemesis, frenemy. She was like just as she, like we were like the same amount of good at violin, and we were like the same age. So we like, but we really liked each other. We hung out a lot, but we were also kind of competitive. Um, and when we were like, and she was from Queens, so uh, <laughs> so <laughs> when we were like teenagers, she developed a uh, shoplifting habit, uh -huh. and um, <laughs> and I sort of followed in her footsteps. <laughs> I'm blaming this on her, but you know, it takes two to shoplift. Hundreds of dollars of clothes from um, uh, Urban Outfitters, from the Urban Outfitters on 2nd Avenue <laughs> and 10th Street, where, oh yeah? <laughs> it was very easy to shoplift from there because you would just, like, they didn't have any things on the doors or whatever, so you could just like pile a bunch of clothes on and then walk out the door. And she was like, fearless about this like one day she walked out of there with I'm not even kidding like a thousand dollars worth of clothes on her body <laughs> like it was incredible um I, I, that's kind of a queen's anecdote. <laughs> I don't know if that's a queen's anecdote um <laughs> I will say that years later I like moved to queen's I was like Back in New York, after living in San Francisco for a couple of years, I was teaching at the school that I went to in Brooklyn. I was living with my parents, which is like never a good thing. <laughs> I was like 25, maybe, um, and making like maybe $24,000 a year. Um, and I, so I was like, yeah, I have a salary now. I'm going to move out of my parents' house, and I'm where am I going to go? And I found a place in Queens. Um, and I moved in with this girl who had like three cats and the whole place smelled like cats and she had an enormous 
a quantity of of chocolate in her apartment and I was like really trying to save money so I like never bought any food. I would like go to my parents' house after work and like eat all their food and then go to Queens and like eat all of her chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I don't know if it was, like, the Queen's shoplifting connection, but, like, there's something about thievery and Queen's and, like, deeply rooted issues. So, yeah, that's that's my ridiculous, not really an anecdote about Queen's. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Self-Portrait with Boy is about a an artist living in Brooklyn in 1991. She has taken a photograph of herself and in the background of the photograph, there's a boy falling to his death um, from the roof of her building. Uh, so it's a great picture. Uh, she's just developed it and realized how great a picture it is. But meanwhile, the boy is the son of her upstairs neighbor and like the whole building is sort of traumatized by this, the death of this boy. So she realizes she needs to go upstairs and talk to her neighbor about this image. Um, so this is early in the book. She's just gone upstairs and this is her first conversation with his mother. Um, they've been chit-chatting a little bit. So I'm just gonna jump in in the middle here. How did you and Steve meet, I asked. God, I met Steve when I was 17. Can you believe that? 17. Where? This is his, his mother talking. We met twice, actually. The first time was at a show, a concert, Springsteen. I was there with a girl who was obsessed. Steve was a few rows away from us with another woman. He gave me a look over her shoulder, real, really brazen, really took it all in. I remember thinking, what a sleaze, you know? That's a real sleazy move. I nodded as if I understood. People didn't do things like that to me. The second time was a few months later. Immediately I recognized him from the show. I was taking classes at the community college while I finished high school. I just wanted to get the hell out of there as soon as possible. I figured in three years I could get my degree and move to New York. I didn't know what I wanted a degree in. I just thought of it as a passport. Sure. There was a girl in my art history class I'd become friendly with who told me about this gallery opening, this sexy local painter. She wanted me to go with her, so I said, sure. We show up and there he is. He didn't remember me at all, not a flash of recognition. I was 17, I was a kid. I said to him, I know you, thinking I'm so sophisticated, thinking I'm hot shit. He said, absolutely not, you don't, I'd remember you. He egged me on. He made a bit of a fool out of me, which I loved, of course. Eventually, I said to him, paint me. Wow. I know, I'd never say anything so bold today. His work back then was not so different from what he does now. A little cruder, maybe. Thicker brush strokes. It doesn't matter. They were nudes. I said, paint me, and he just laughed. He said, I'd never paint you. Why not, I said. Kate tilted her head at me. I got the sense she'd told this story a thousand times, and no one had ever asked her why Steve had refused to paint her. Maybe other people took for granted the idea that a man might insult a woman to get her into bed. He said my body was too boring, she replied, which I was totally offended, but I totally slept with him. Years later, though, you know, I get it. I got up and wandered through the loft, looking again at Steve's nudes, the wandering lines, the curves and valleys of the form, the doubled and tripled lines suggesting movement, restlessness. I get it, I said. Kate got up, too, and made her way to the fridge to refill her plate. He likes a little substance to his models, she said. Heavy breasts and bellies, broad thighs. It's more than that, though, I said. There's a stillness to you, the way you stand and move. He's interested in motion. Huh, she said into the fridge. That's what he says, too. She retrieved some clashing snacks and brought them with her back to the living area, along with the teddy bear. We sat together on her couch. She threw an afghan over her legs. We talked about art. What interests you, she said, as an artist. Her frank curiosity was disarming. I answered slowly. Discipline, I said. The element of chance. 
I felt myself fumbling, attempting to access the kind of frankness Kate inspired. I think that actually my feelings about discipline come from insecurity, I said, the knowledge that I'm really not all that good. I can't draw, for instance. I have poor depth perception. In art school, I was weak in sculpture and draftsmanship. The kind of innate talent that Steve has, I don't have it. But I have an eye. I have my own mind. And I have discipline. You're ambitious, she said. I took a deep breath. Now, I told myself. Tell her now. There won't be a better opportunity. Well, I began. She lit a cigarette. Holding the teddy bear to her belly, she declared, I think discipline is all there is. Seriously. Without discipline, raw talent is worthless. When I first met Steve, he was almost 30, and he'd never lived anywhere but Providence and Teaneck. He was just fucking around, drawing, <laughs> painting, drinking, screwing a new woman every week. He had a little gallery, and they were so enamored by him, they let him produce when he wanted to produce, give them new work when he felt like giving them new work, and basically that was that. He was so spoiled. He didn't have a future. He didn't have any future at all until he met me. You wanted him to move to New York. That's right, I did. I wanted this. She looked around the loft, and without warning, with that low, loud sort of sound that seemed to come straight from her belly, she began to cry. I was taken aback, suddenly hyper-aware of my own presence in her space. I stood up. I'm sorry, I said. I'm so sorry. I'll go. Holding her cigarette away from her body with one hand, her head bent over her chest, she reached her other hand out to me. No, don't go, she managed, feeling for me. I'm sorry, she said through her tears. Sometimes the moment lasted too long. Don't be, I said. I sat back down. She found my arm and clutched it tightly. I waited with her while, over the course of a minute or two, the sobs slowed, then quieted. The cigarette burned to her fingers, became a cylinder of ash, and fell to the carpet. She said, there's a white Bordeaux in the fridge. I went to the kitchen and brought it back to the couch. Through this bottle, the tenor of our conversa conversation changed. I admitted I'd never lost anyone close to me, at least not at an age when I could really comprehend it. Trying to explain the experience of her own grief, she seemed to brighten. It was as if, despite the insurmountable difficulty of it all, her curiosity had not been extinguished. She was fascinated by her own incredible pain. Grief is so weird. It's so fucking weird, she said. Max was a part of me, you know? He was an actual part of me. He was inside of me for nine months before he ever breathed air. And now that he's gone, it's like part of me is gone too, and I can feel my brain stretching and warping to try to understand it, to compensate. I can feel myself trying to fill in the gap and then resisting filling in the gap because there would be nothing worse than filling in that gap. Nothing worse. Does that make sense? I just cannot understand how he can be gone and I can still be here. I cannot understand it. Meanwhile, all week I've been having these strange, intensely sensory flashes of memory. The day he was born, the feeling of his skin, the smell of blood, the wooziness of the drugs I was on. Steve next to me breathing. Steve's coffee breath. That's one thing I've remembered. We've been up for 17 hours, and now there was this little being, and my body felt emptier than it had ever been. I was physically destroyed, and there was this creature, tiny nose, tiny hands, screaming so quietly, breathing gulps of air, hiccuping, and I kept thinking, this is a hospital, right? Doesn't anyone have any mouthwash for my husband? <laughs> or God, I remembered this morning. It just occurred to me, like, not like a memory, but almost like an original idea, but it is a memory. I just hadn't thought of it in months and years. When I first started noticing gray hairs, I was pulling them out one by one obsessively in front of the mirror every morning. What vanity, right? Max was just four or something, and he would sit there on the toilet and watch me. He'd get upset. Mama, don't do that. I explained to him it didn't hurt. It was to keep Mama young and pretty, some shit like that, I don't know. One morning, I woke up to him standing next to the bed, yanking my hair, just yanking my hair as hard as he could. I didn't know what was happening. I just woken up, was totally disoriented. I yelled at him, and he ran away crying. He hid under the couch for over an hour. That's what occurred to me this morning, just occurred to me out of nowhere. 
the memory of getting down on my hands and knees next to the couch, his back to me, and talking to him while he cried, his face to the wall, saying, baby, it's okay, I know you were trying to help, I'm sorry, I know you were helping. Or, Kate said, and she was getting drunk, it's like this, I have always been an emotional person. Steve and I have always had a tumultuous relationship. I mean, we fight like anyone. I get PMS like anyone. I cry. I have a shitty relationship with my mom, I guess. Maybe no more shitty than anyone else. But that's the thing. This whole thing, she gestured at the space around her with the teddy bear, has put everything else in perspective. Even when I thought I was at my darkest, even when, I don't know, I was a teenager and thought I wanted to die, I had no idea. I had no goddamn idea how awful I could feel. It's like I'd been living in a world where the darkest I could get was a kind of light to medium gray. Now I know what black looks like, real black, not asphalt black or oil black or ink black or pupil black, but true black, empty black, nothing black. I'm sorry, I said again. No, no, she wiped her eyes, her nose. I don't want you to be sorry. I really don't want anyone to be sorry. I just want you to understand. It gets so bad, so fucking bad. I just want everyone to know. I want to be, I want to be a fucking ambassador for Sadland. I laughed despite myself. She began to laugh too through the snot and tears. I just want everyone to know, she said, you're okay. You're all okay. Everyone is okay, except for me. More wine, more cigarettes. I was engrossed. I was committed. By the middle of the second bottle, I was unsteady on my feet. I struggled up and announced I had to pee. Kate nodded gravely. On my way to the bathroom, I knocked over a paint can of flowers. Water and snapdragons spilled all over the concrete floor. Leave it, Kate called. I'll clean it up tomorrow. In the mirror, I, I looked at myself and was aggravated by my own ugliness. You don't belong here, I told myself. Stop drinking. Stop smoking. You don't even smoke. Go home. I washed my hands and splashed water on my face without thinking to take off my glasses. I wiped off the lenses <laughs> on a beach towel printed with a cartoon Spider-Man. God, I said out loud, how would I thought I could just come up here and tell her about this photograph? Her grief was so much bigger than one meager photograph. That was just art. This was death and life. I felt foolish and thick-headed and so ugly. When I came back to the living room, Kate was lying on her back on the floor, smoking quietly, the ashtray in the recess of her belly. You know what, though, she said, as if I'd been there chatting with her the whole time. Despite everything, or among everything, all the other shit, the grief and the horrible pain and all that, and this is going to make me sound like a monster, but there's a small, a very small, a tiny part of me that is relieved. I couldn't leave. I sat back down and poured another splash into my glass. I was afraid of what she might tell me. I was afraid of the darkness she described. Motherhood is just so hard. It is so hard. And Max was, he was wonderful. He was so full of joy. He had so much life in him. He was so smart and sweet and curious. He was my best friend. I needed him so badly. It wasn't fair, but it was true. He needed me too, of course he did, but I might have needed him even more. He was such a pain in the ass, though. He was worse than a pain <laughs> in the ass. He brought out the worst in me and he knew it. He made me hate myself for how I treated him sometimes. There were times he'd be talking a mile a minute about something or other and bouncing around or running back and forth, God, whatever he would do. He was always moving and I just shut him down. I didn't wanna hear it all the time. I didn't wanna have to pay attention, to always fucking pay attention. He gave me no space of my own, no space to anything, to eat my own food or go my own places or say my own words or think my own thoughts. For nine years because of him, I had no space to breathe. She closed her eyes. I'm not saying this is a silver lining. There is no silver lining. Everything is horrible. But being able to smoke and drink and stay up late to breathe, she breathed. It's a relief. I stayed with her in the silence that followed her confession. 
Our glasses were empty. The bottle was empty. Kate seemed emptied, too. Eventually, I looked down and saw that she was sleeping there on the antique rug. I removed the ashtray from her belly and laid the afghan over her. Quietly, unsteadily, I made my way through her place and back down to my own dark loft. It was colder downstairs. I felt shivery and nauseated. I got undressed and lay down on my hard futon. It was past two in the morning, but I could not sleep. I lay there with my eyes open, considering everything. Kate, the photograph, and grief. My dad and his declining sight. After what seemed like hours, I must have finally dozed off because I woke again with a start to an unfamiliar sound. At first, I thought there was someone at the door. It sounded like a knocking or a tapping. It was an attempt to get in. I sat up and shook off the fog of sleep. Listening, I realized it wasn't coming from the door at all. It was coming from the window, but there was nothing there. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>